Welcome to this edition of At The Mic. I'm your host, Keith Malinak. We're starting things a little different this week as tragedy struck the At The Mic family on Saturday. Perhaps you saw the story out of Des Moines, Iowa from Saturday afternoon where a tornado struck and killed six people. So tragic. Well, we're happy to report that Dave Matthews and his wife, Faith, who run APR Coffee, the primary sponsor of this podcast, American Pride Roasters Coffee, they were able to escape with their lives, and it is a harrowing story, but they did lose everything. Well, a donation page has been set up for Dave and Faith as they try to rebuild from the ground up, literally starting over. Dave and Faith have asked for nothing, but we want to help. So the easiest way to donate, if you are able, is to head over to atthemikeshow.com. And on the top row there at the webpage, uh, click on blog, and that'll take you to the blog section, obviously. And then the most recent post is the one that will lead you to a way to donate to Dave and Faith as they attempt to rebuild. So that's at themikeshow.com. Click on blog. And if you could please donate to their efforts at rebuilding, all of us would be so grateful. Thank you. Now on to this week's episode. You're going to see firsthand how great of a guy Dave Matthews is. Ironically enough, the timing could not be more amazing. Here is my conversation with Dave Matthews. Um, obviously, this was recorded before tragedy struck. Here's our conversation on At The Mic. You're listening to At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Well, the first ever sponsor of At The Mic was none other than APR Coffee. The guy at the heart of that unique, one-of-a-kind coffee company, Dave Matthews, is my guest today. He and I sat down to discuss his love of history, his love of Yellowstone National Park, and of course, his love of brewing coffee for you. It's time to get started with my guest this week on At The Mic. Here's Dave Matthews. Now, this is long distance. I'm joined by Dave Matthews. He is the founder, the entrepreneur that brought you APR Coffee, American Pride Roasters Coffee, the very first sponsor of this program, and which I'm so grateful for, Dave, APRCoffee.com. Thanks for making time, man. I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. This is such an honor. I mean, it's it's kind of cool. I mean, I got to admit, I'm trying not to totally <laughs> just geek out here. Well, thank you. Everyone, don't forget APRCoffee.com. And offer code ATM, which they've probably already heard the commercial that just preceded this conversation, but I have to had to pound that home because you guys seriously make the greatest coffee ever. See, I love to hear that too. I mean, it's it's undescribable when you create something that someone else enjoys and enjoys well enough to bring it to your attention that, hey, what you did, this is something special. I it's there's a no feeling like it in the world. I, I guess it makes all the hard work and all of the literal blood, sweat and tears worth it. Sure. Well, let's start there. What got you into that world of coffee making right there in just outside Des Moines, Iowa? What got you into that realm and and explain our mutual friend who left us way too soon, Doc Thompson, his being, I guess, the catalyst for helping you take off and helping your business uh, do as well as it did. And then from there, what happened? 
Well, to do a little bit of brief backstory, I went back to college a little bit older in life. I was nearly 30 and working full time and commuting up to Ames. And so that that extra the hours of sleep I was missing, I realized I'm going to have to do something. I always liked coffee, but it was kind of in the background. But I realized that now is the time to to hit the caffeine. <laughs> and I, I was continually disappointed with what I would purchase at the store. It seemed like no matter how expensive it was, the quality just wasn't there. And not only was it, you know, the lack of quality, that price point really bothered me too. So I thought, you know, there's got to be a way for me to do this cheaper and better. And by the time I got done with college, I I started exploring what we could do to make our own coffee without all the price, but all the taste. And I found these people online that were using little air pop popcorn poppers oh. and just roasting tiny batches of green beans. And it seems it sounds like something that I mean, it makes sense, but it doesn't. And I mean, if you've ever had air pop popcorn, most of the time it's terrible because it's just, it's dry. It tends to get burned. So everyone had one of those old air poppers from the seventies and eighties lying around, which my parents did. So I went into their basement and pulled <laughs> it out and took it home and thought, you know, I think I can make this work. And it took a lot of practice, but eventually I actually got pretty good at it. it so much so that whenever we would leave town, I would hit every single DAV thrift store, you name it. I was going to stop there and check and see what they had by way of air poppers, because <laughs> at that temperature and time, I mean, you're instead of running them for a couple of minutes, you're running them for, for sometimes an hour or two. Mm -hmm. They burned up pretty quick. So from 2009 through 2012, I kind of learned the process, a lot of trial and error, had a semi-elaborate little setup in the garage and was just roasting for my own personal consumption. And I never really thought about it as a business. I, I had one of the easiest jobs on earth. I was a bookkeeper at a pharmacy and Christian bookstore just outside of town. And I worked there three days a week and from home the rest, I had tons of vacation time. They paid <laughs> me well. So, so I had this nice, easy, cushy life that suddenly in 2012 just went away. And I never really thought about it as a business until, in fact, I was down in Dallas for the first time at Restoring Love. Right. And I was actually gifted the Dinner with Jeffy auction. <laughs> so I was one of the, yeah, which which was totally, I, I was completely shocked because I knew that I didn't have a job. Just getting down there was going to be a careful thing to do. And they said, hey, you know, we really want you to come along. I thought, well, I've got to do something for all these people. They're the ones that paid the money. I'm just along for the ride. So I spent an entire afternoon and evening roasting coffee, putting it in little bags, making little gift bags for people. And one by one, the next couple of weeks, I got messages from every single person saying, hey, you know, you may be onto something here. <laughs> so congratulations for winning a contest where Jeffy was your prize. <laughs> you know what? It, it was a, the dinner was a blast. Too. <laughs> right, I right. Mean, yeah. Oh, he's I, great to talk to. He's episode three, by the way. If those uh, uh, listening want to go and check out uh, the early days of at the mic, but uh, man, th that's cool. So basically, people just told you, "Hey, you got a talent here. Maybe you should explore this." Huh? It was in the back of both of my wife's and my mind that, hey, this is an idea, but it never really gelled until I started working at age 10 and never had a gap. So we had hit about the five month point and I was starting to get a little nervous, but still something's going to come along. I'm not too worried. Well, we went on our annual vacation out west 
And on the way home, we were still about 500 miles away and the transmission went out on our excursion mm. in the middle of South Dakota along I-90. And I know enough about vehicles to know how much it was going to cost. The fact that I couldn't fix it myself. It, reality hit very, very fast. Throughout the next day, it took a tow trip 50 miles east. We were given a ride almost 200 miles west to get a car rental to drive all the way back home. And throughout that, we realized that we had to do something now to bring money in. And the only thing that I knew that was something I could provide others that I understood was coffee. You know, as we're driving home, we're discussing there's got to be a way that I can do more coffee, but not shell out $100,000 for a coffee shop. Mm -hmm. So it, surprisingly, it took us 18 days to have our first sale. Wow. And then things started to take yeah. off. Yeah. And, and I do want to get into the great story of you and Doc Thompson and you making a specific flavor for him. I do want to get to that. But let's go back, though, to the beginning. You were born and raised in Des Moines, Iowa. Lived here almost my entire life. Now, I've got to say, as someone who grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, I was always told, you know, the big rivalry between those that live in Georgia and those that live in Alabama. I don't know. I guess we were trying to out redneck each other. But I didn't <laughs> realize the uh, until I attended the University of Nebraska, and I realized when I lived there in Lincoln that uh, there's the Nebraska-Iowa rivalry, the way Georgia and Alabama, I guess, are. Uh, and, and I'm not talking about football. I'm just talking about just people interacting there. Has that been your experience? People from Nebraska, people from Iowa always giving each other a hard time? Or has that just been my, that was my experience in college? No, it's uh, it, it's a lifestyle. I mean, we, we look over the Missouri River and shake our fists at those people. Yeah, it, the, the Nebraska sucks mantra. It, <laughs> it, it, it remains it will carry on, hopefully in perpetuity. Oh. And, and it's so funny because it's one of those intense things that you know it surrounds itself in football. Oh. First with Iowa State, who was a doormat for a lot of years. Yeah. And now with Iowa, who. Oh. Gosh, just can't they, lose. They cannot. I mean, lose every every time they just can't lose. Yeah, yeah. Um, which makes me so proud. I mean, even though I'm an Iowa State grad, it makes me so proud. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's this hatred of the state. Not really the people, just the state. That 460 right. miles of I-80 yeah. of just pure nothingness. Uh, I know it. And when well. you have to drive it twice in one vacation. Hold on a second. Let's just talk about Interstate 80 for a second. I drove that between Lincoln and Scotts Bluff. Well, technically Lincoln and Kimball, and then turn right and head north to Scotts Bluff. I drove that so many times over the course of my four years at Nebraska. I know it well. So, um, yeah, but it, I mean, it's still a beautiful state. I will say our corn tastes better than your corn. Okay. Ooh, disagree. <laughs> mm. Okay. So, uh, so you're familiar with, with, with the state of Nebraska. And like you said, the people, and, and I can say the same about people from Iowa, the people in Iowa are great, but yeah, there is that rivalry. Of course. We had that big flood, what, two years ago along the Missouri River. Yeah. And everyone from Iowa, I mean, they were the first people out to help people from Nebraska. And it's always been when something bad happens, mm -hmm. we're all best friends. Yeah. The rest of the time, we can shake our fists at each other and, and yell back and forth. And, <laughs> and I can threaten the whole Carter Lake debacle that 
you oh. guys are trying to steal it from us. Hold on a second. Nebraska is trying to take Carter Lake, Iowa, and make it a part of Nebraska? Because if, if people don't know the story, you fix this if I get this wrong. Okay, Dave? Uh, Missouri okay. River ran, you know, between Nebraska and Iowa. Corps of Engineers screwed up something, and now there's like an Oxbow Lake, whereas part of Iowa is now on the western side of the Missouri River. So it's technically in Nebraska, but it's part of Iowa. Uh, so far, I got this right. You got it it's, correct. It's, it's right near the airport. There's a little enclave of Iowa on the Nebraska side of the Missouri River. But you're telling me that Nebraska wants that? We can't defend it. What's yeah, the, I mean, what that it, is, it, is it the most sharp? I know, but still, it's ours. I don't care if right. the whole thing was the city don't. It's still right. Iowa's, and I, I just, I see a lot of side eye whenever I'm around there, and I know at some point there's going to be an insurrection type movement <laughs> where everybody rushes it and it all turns red. <laughs> so hang on a second. Is there an actual movement in Nebraska to claim Carter Lake, Iowa for itself? I can't confirm or deny that wow and i think that there's there's not enough of a movement in iowa to protect it i hear these these silly and they're they're transplanted iowans ah just let them have it let them have it no that's ours right right it's a a population of three thousand seven hundred and eighty five people it's it's literally just for all intents and purposes in the middle of omaha it's it, it, it is it's kind of just stuck ground that I'm I'm actually surprised we didn't just give it away at some point. Honestly, so I'm what? trying to make sure that that movement happens so that we protect. That's part of our state. I don't care if it floated over to the other side sure. or however it got there. It's ours. It's it's like honestly, it's got like convenience stores in it. That's all the town is. It it, it should be convenience store Lake Iowa. <laughs> I mean, there's not. Uh, okay, well, I, I I'm fascinated by how river boundaries change and and stuff like that, and because there is a. Uh, there's a book, and it was a show as well, how the states got their shapes. It's fascinating how some of these boundaries happened, but uh, I love little things like that, you know? It's one of those things where if we have another reason to be irritated at Nebraska, we got to jump on it. That's, that's see, now that's the <laughs> most, that is exactly right. There you go. So, okay, you grew up there in Des Moines. You have uh, a sister who's, what, a little bit older than you. Were you guys close growing up? We were somewhat kind of forced to be close. I mean, we're <laughs> just a few months apart, just over seven months to that's be what exact. I'm, that's what I'm trying to figure out the math on that because... Uh, uh, One it, of us is adopted. Okay, that's what they my, my parents went through the process. <laughs> now, they it wasn't one of these type of things where they didn't think they could have children and then suddenly, surprise, uh -huh. it was all planned. They wanted to adopt. They wanted to have one. It just all happened kind of at once. I gotcha. Okay, so did they tell you which of the two of you was adopted? Oh, yeah, it's my sister. Okay. But to put all four of us together, you, you really don't realize that especially when when i was little how cool i was the only one i had i had almost white blonde hair and all the rest of them have dark hair they all had kind of similar <laughs> food tastes it, it was everyone that knew one child was adopted assumed it was me wow and, and i didn't care i mean i have one sister and she's been with us since before i was born so so it's all good but yeah it's funny when people look at us they're like it was him. Uh -huh. oh, sorry. Uh huh. So your earliest memory growing up, though, I mean, who didn't have access to one of these? And if you didn't, then I'll just tell you up front, you, you were robbed of your childhood. 
And that's the Fisher-Price barn, the little thing where you point the arrow to whichever animal you want to hear, and it says, the cow says moo, right? No, this one's even older than that. It didn't even do that. When you open the barn door, there was this little trigger, a little... It was a button, basically, that had pressure on it, and it would move when the door would go open or close. No, that sounds cool. I I, I almost would rather have that. And I was just, yeah, I was just old enough to realize that it made a really cool sound, but I knew it wasn't coming from the actual cow. So (laughs) you have to stare at that barn for a few minutes and think, wait, it's the door making the sound, not the cow. And then, of course, I was disappointed because I thought that the cow was what made noise Uh so that was your earliest memory and i must have been three somewhere around there i mean it was iowa though so you'd think that you would have known what a cow did without the aid of a toy though man well to be fair i (laughs) spent my formative years in the city so it may have been a few more days before after i was born that i saw a cow i got you i got you but you do have a point there (laughs) so explain to me you went to des moines area community college for a few years but then there's like a 10 year gap before you went to Iowa State. What was going on? What were you doing during that? And wh- why'd you uh, go back to school? Well, after my first five years in school, I was homeschooled. My parents were both teachers at one point in time. My dad much earlier on, and then he moved into parole and probation. And my mom taught it at Christian school on the east side of Des Moines. And they, they had talked about and Of course, we were homeschooling when that wasn't the end thing. And when we moved out into the country, we were the only students in their entire district. And it offended the district that we didn't participate in their school. So I also graduated rather early. It was a little more than two years early. So I was still kind of figuring out in my first trip through college what I wanted to do. You know, I got midway through realizing I'm going to go to a four-year institution. I'd taken some time off before school. So even though I'd had two years, I'd just just turned 19 and my parents ended up buying a business and I thought, well, I'll take a break for a semester and just help them out. And 10 years went by. Mm. And along that time, you know, get married, changed to a different career. The, their business went away. I'd always wanted to go back and finish my degree. My real goal was to get something where if the opportunity would present itself, I could go and work in a museum. Oh, wow. That's and a cool idea. At a school that is mostly known for agriculture and science, I went to the liberal arts department. <laughs> While everyone else had all the really cool buildings and you know air conditioning and fun stuff like that, you know we, we were in the basement of whatever was left over. That's effectively what I did at Nebraska. I went to yeah. a school that had a lot of ag stuff going on there, but uh, they have a good broadcasting school there. But yeah, at the time, we were in a very old outdated building uh and in fact uh the broadcasting professors uh they they said that that when johnny carson who went there and you know was at the same radio station there and all that good stuff when he donated money back to the college he gave it to a theater program that didn't exist when he was going to school there it's like whoa bro what's up man what why why aren't we in johnny carson hall here for broadcasting you know that's right? where you went so anyhow that that's what they tell it now they're in a very nice facility now in fact they moved into it just after i graduated there it's really nice uh it's it's a it's but we we were old school man and that was cool i i, I didn't mind avery hall so shout out to avery hall 
I don't know what goes on in that building now on the campus there in Lincoln, but uh, that's where I hung out. So, well, we'll grudgingly give you Carson, even though he was born in Iowa. We he spent enough time in Nebraska. I guess we have to kind of give him away. Norfolk, Nebraska's own. Don't you dare take him away from that little town. <laughs> that's my wife's hometown. No, don't don't be taking Johnny Carson away from Norfolk, Nebraska. We almost lived there for a time. It, it was literally one week from us living there. So huh. it almost happened. Oh, wow. Wow. Yep. Well, I guess you missed out. <laughs> yeah, um, I visited there once again in a different life. I was running a bowling center and I had to go and inspect their bowling center. Well, let's talk about that because I always thought that'd be cool to work at a bowling alley and get to go like backstage where all the pins get stuck and stuff. Uh, what did you do at a, at a bowling alley, man? As a kid, loved baseball, mm-hmm. played a lot of baseball, Thought that I could be a pitcher. I had trouble batting, so I figured pitching was giving me my thing. I have a lot of accuracy, little ball speed, but as a lefty, might be able to get by. But my arm said no and kept saying no repeatedly. Mm. So I switched to bowling. Mm. And interestingly enough, I switched to bowling as a right-hander and then bowled for a while left-handed. But when the arm trouble from baseball became too great, yeah. I switched back. So I did it enough that I'm I'm already pretty ambidextrous, but with bowling, it pretty much became second nature. No, and I understand about the, the arm situation. I'm currently going through physical therapy because I didn't heed the warnings of coaches and other players and, and adults throughout my entire childhood of stop throwing like that. You're going to tear your arm up. And I would basically throw sidearm just because it just, it worked for me, you know? And I am literally part of my physical therapy right now is I am being retrained, and my physical therapist, um, Chad Womble, an earlier episode here of At The Mic, he was actually a college pitcher, and he's effectively teaching me how to throw properly now at the age of 45. It's embarrassing. But uh, but you had some talent there, huh? Quite a bit, actually. It was crazy. It was enough that I thought maybe I could make some money off bowling, some serious money. Uh, I spent a lot of hours practicing uh, the funny part was the left side had all of the smooth release, you know, get all the attention, but I had much less control because the same stiffness and breakdown issues were always there. So I kind of focused on bowling more right-handed and it's, it caused a surprising amount of drama, both in youth leagues. And then when I moved up into the adult arena, lots of people considered it to be an unfair advantage. And I went through a lot of, Hey, this isn't fair. You can't do this. It's not allowed. And you know, bringing along a rule book to tournaments and things like that. Um, so, and you'd be surprised at how how worked up the bowling world gets about the sport. But there, there's a lot to that. In that, you know, I knew that it'd be double the games, double the effort, double the equipment because you had to have different shoes, different mm. bowling balls, different everything. So it was it was rather expensive and time consuming. Um, but it did start to pay off once I got into my 20s and started really learning how to not just throw the ball well, but the mental aspect of it. Bowling is a lot like golf in that if you don't have a mental game, it doesn't matter how well you throw the ball, hmm. how much equipment you have. If your mental game's in trouble, you're not going to make it. Hmm. And so along the way of the bowling side, I started working in bowling centers and that moved a lot quicker. I I went from running the desk at a small center to an assistant manager in Kansas city to running the biggest center in Des Moines in a matter of about a year. 
So, which was nice for me because then I was around the bowling world a lot more, but it was, it was an incredible amount of work and it was both really, really exciting and really rewarding. And one of the darker periods of our life, because just, it was clear going in that it wasn't going to be the lifestyle that we were going to want to live. Wow. Yeah. Okay, man. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that, that my wife worked at the hospital and worked days during the week. And my job was weekends and holidays and in uh, a lot of extra hours. And we, the only time we saw each other for that entire three year period was really at the bowling center. My goodness. My goodness. What? And that gets kind of stressful. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I can understand that. So what, I gotta know what what what's an average game that Dave Matthews bowls when he when he goes uh, just to hang out at the bowling alley like today. Well, today probably not so great because full disclosure, I haven't touched a bowling ball in two years. Wow, it, the game became kind of toxic to me. Um, I forced that for a lot of years where I think God was saying, you know there's going to come a time where you're going to have to change your life. And if you don't change your life, I'm going to change it for you. Mm. And throughout that period, I was becoming more successful in bowling, but was never really happy. And the breaking point was my hand. I, I was diagnosed with a really rare bone disease where the bones lose circulation and they start dying in your wrist. Mm. It's called keen box. And because the pain started increasing more and more and more, and no matter what I could do, the pain was just getting worse. I had carpal tunnel surgery. I had, you know, the injections and the end of the road for that is they have to go in and fuse all of the bones together. And so I, that's when I realized, Hey, you know, I'm in my thirties. I haven't made it to the PBA yet. <laughs> Maybe it's time that I just do this for fun and just do it left-handed. Now that all said before the <laughs> diagnosis, and this is something that is kind of funny is before the diagnosis, when I had my first injection, all the pain went away for about six, six, seven weeks. And all of a sudden it was like the bowling ball was beach ball sized. And I was bowling in a PBA experience league and averaging what the pros on TV would. I went to a, a major tournament it's now the USBC nationals. And when I left, I was in 16th place and finished overall in 48th, which again, it sounds, wow, 48th isn't you know so great, but there's over 20, maybe 30,000 people. That wow. bowl they, bowl, That's incredible. they bowl seven days a week from January through early July. Mm. I figured out my psychological part of my game, the physical part of the game's coming along. I'm starting to get that elite edge on the ball where stuff comes in and the pins just disappear and then all the pain came back and it just from there, it just kind of spiraled down to me realizing, uh oh, no, man. Could could you teach um, someone like me to ever in their life? I just one time I want to be able to 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 clean up a seven ten split. That takes a combination <laughs> of skill and mostly luck. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and that's that's a funny story because the the uh, companion split is called the big force, the four, six, seven, ten, uh -huh. which in many ways is actually tougher than the seven, ten, because you have to pound two pins on one side and have them kick over and hit the other side. And in major tournaments, the way that they deal with the backside of the lane, it's even tougher to get pins to kick around mm -hmm. because otherwise the really good bowlers would do it all the time. 
the only time I ever picked up that split was in that tournament that I was talking about at nationals down in Baton Rouge in 2012. And I was so excited because I'd never picked it up before. And I turned around to, to, to look for faith. And it was the only time where she had left to go and get something to eat. No, but it was also a great experience for me because it was in a way it became validation for all of the hard work that I knew that even though, you know, later on the physical trouble showed up and got worse and worse, I felt like, for once, I was right on the edge of being there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like it. And, and, and so you're now a coffee aficionado. You were, sounds like, darn close to being a professional bowler. You've had other jobs, though, in your life. Uh, you got to talk to us about how does one in that northern of a climate handle being a newspaper carrier? I, I just could oh, not boy. imagine being out in that cold weather, the snow, my goodness. Did you have any uh, harrowing moments doing that? It was one of those experiences that I loved that part of it because you experienced climate in Iowa on the ground. Yeah. And the easiest thing to do in the wintertime was you just outrun the cold. <laughs> if you just run faster, you're not as cold. So okay. when I had, yeah, when I had my newspaper out and it's, and it's a seven day a week thing. And there were streaks where it would be a year or two in between breaks. So I would be out there all seven days and just you run as hard as you can when it's cold and the days it's a little bit warmer, you don't. Okay, so take us back to your coffee venture now, aprcoffee.com, and how Doc Thompson played such a pivotal role in its success. We talked about the whole the transmission thing and got to do something well even though we were making sales, it was little tiny amounts. And it was mostly me spending hours and hours and hours trying to figure out how to roast coffee properly in a volume <laughs> that was sellable. You know, for instance, you know, the first thing that we did, I spent 11 hours roasting 30 pounds of coffee where I can do that in 45 minutes right now, just any time. Along the way, we, we, just finished a couple of markets. So we're still brand new. I mean, it's still trying to figure out how to make labels work and things like that. And a tornado goes through more Oklahoma, mm-hmm. devastates the town. Doc and Skip go up there and do a 24 hour broadcast. I'm thinking, okay, I've got this coffee. We actually had extra coffee because believe it or not, our very first farmer's market was in May and we had five or six inches of snow the day before, which it never snows in May in Iowa until then. And so we kind of set off on a bad foot with it being cold and miserable. And anyway, I I had extra coffee. It could go to a good cause. So I sent Skip a message and said, Hey, uh, what can I do to, to help out? You know, can I send this down there? And just, even if it's getting to first responders, whatever, And he liked the idea and he said, you know what? We're going to put you on the air. So I called in. I'll never forget this because I'm standing out in our house on the south side of Des Moines on portable phone. And I'm out there talking with Doc about coffee and what we can do to help. And all of a sudden, Doc says, hey, um, you know, it'd be really cool ideas if someone would make bacon coffee. (laughs) And I kind of held the phone out and looked around and there's nobody out there and I looked around like um hmm, this is going to be really tough you know in the back of my head i'm thinking okay i'm i'm literally just 
to the point where we can roast enough to do a farmer's market. <laughs> I really haven't even the concept of flavors other than something we could actually put into the coffee directly like cinnamon. That was foreign. And so I grabbed the phone back and said, oh, I think I can do that. <laughs> and everything I tried, it may smell like bacon, but it tasted horrible. <laughs> or it would taste okay, but smell horrible. Yeah. So I had all but abandoned the idea. And then again, Doc and Skip were headed through the Midwest. And I knew they were going to stop at Omaha. And I thought, you know, if I can just try this one more time, I can fulfill a promise that I made. I made this promise and enough people heard it that the guy that had done artwork for us already had drawn up <laughs> the Doc Thompson's bacon blast. He already had the artwork. Everything was ready. It was just me. They were waiting and the on coffee. you. <laughs> yeah. And so everybody's waiting on me. So I gave it the last attempt to make it at least close. In fact, I knew that it wasn't going to taste bacony enough after I tried it, but it smelled that way if I left the beans alone. So I, I knew I was going to have to take it to them in whole bean form and think, well, if they don't have a grinder, this could get interesting. <laughs> uh, so I grabbed that and I thought along the way, I knew uh, my wife had this great idea where you take, she, she likes the chocolate covered coffee beans, but doesn't like, like, and I'm the same way. I don't like the gritty aftertaste because you're chewing on that thing and it's like stuck in your teeth and you've got that weird, gritty, <laughs> nasty, funky. And, and usually people that, that it's old beans. So the chocolate may be good, but the coffee's terrible. So her idea was to take fresh roasted coffee and grind it pretty much to a powder and make what looks like a giant chocolate chip. We added some butterscotch and some cinnamon and they're unbelievable. Huh. So I thought, you know what, at least I can take that too, because that's something that they're going to enjoy. And I already knew just from listening to doc. And again, it was the type of thing <laughs> where I was a fan from, from pretty much day one of him showing up on the blaze. And so I took the coffee drops and took the coffee and headed out to Omaha on a really dark, foggy, scary looking November night. And they didn't even know what I looked like. I didn't have my, I had no visible presence on Twitter of, of who I was. Mm -hmm. So, so I was able to kind of tweet at skip during their program, their little talk. And he never knew where I was. So I was messing with him like half the time. So he's looking around for me, but couldn't identify who was the person randomly <laughs> tweeting him from right behind him. <laughs> so I think after I, after I had my fun with that, I, I hung around afterwards and said, Hey, you know, you know, me is DM and DM. Um, I brought my promise fulfilled and doc looks at the bag and he's like, man, this is cool. And he tries the coffee drops. He, and it was like, you could see the wheels turning faster and faster. And he stops and he says, you know, these are incredible. And he's looking at the bag again. And I'm thinking all along, my whole goal was I wanted to come out and support them. I thought it would be, hey, thank you. This is cool. Now get out of here, weirdo. You know, go back across the river. <laughs> Instead, I end up hanging out with them for another 15, 20 minutes. They organize what time I'm going to be on the air with them. You know, this is nine or 10 o'clock at night and I still have a two hour drive back home. And he's like, you know what? We're going to have you right at the top of the show. So right at 5 a.m., we're going to have you come on and we'll talk coffee and see if we can get you some business. And I thought, well, this is awesome. And then as we're walking toward the car, 
he says, you know, the blaze gives me a little bit of leeway for what I can do with my own advertising for my own program and what I want to support. So we're going to go ahead and make you the official sponsor of the morning blaze mm. and the official coffee, of the morning blaze and just see, see where it takes us. Sure. So I'm, you know, I'm completely dumbfounded by that point. So I, I really didn't sleep much at night that night. And he pretty much went out of his way and that, from that point on that, that was doc in a nutshell. He yeah. genuinely, cared about those around him becoming successful or even in your case people that he just you know had barely met the guy was genuinely into seeing other people succeed that far and away was his redeeming quality i think just a great human being and 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 i just love the guy and it was so unexpected for for me i wasn't sure he was i guess i couldn't fathom the thought that someone would you know, even though we we had talked on Twitter, someone I had never met would make a commitment and hold up to it in that way. I mean, it's it's just it's it's absolutely unbelievable to be that giving and and to continually do that. I mean, he would look for ways to interject mm -hmm. APR into things. And and sometimes I, I was completely unaware. I mean, there was one time I was still working full time. Uh, I had I had a job doing office work out on the west side of Des Moines, and I'm sitting at my desk, and I hear my phone start dinging, and didn't think much of it, and then all of a sudden I got a message from uh, Big Daddy Childs, who used to work at the Blaze. Oh, Chris Childs, yeah. Um, yeah, 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 and and he sends me a message, and he says, "Dude, did you see what happened?" And I went, "No," and then my phone went ding, 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 <laughs> and there's just orders just coming up over and over, and I went, "I'm guessing." Doc said something. Wow. <laughs> and yes, he had. How awesome is that? So cool. Um, and 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 so you've basically turned this hobby into your profession. There are other hobbies that that you have. Uh, I love how often you guys go to Yellowstone, which is just God's country. What a beautiful corner of America! If you haven't been to Yellowstone, get there. Well, get there before the volcano destroys us all. Right, the oh, super volcano. I'm not worried about just, that. I'm, I don't think that's ever going to happen. Uh, I mean, I know people. Well, I shouldn't say that's ever going to happen, but I think for me, it's the whole. I may take Philippians four eight a little too seriously. The whole whatever is good and wonderful and beautiful, think on that mm. because that is that area. Yeah, I mean yeah. that oh. is especially especially in its wilder state when you get away from the road. And I know that's something you really haven't experienced too much of, but that's we started out that way. We started out in in 2000. It was taking the auto tours, and by 2004 and five, we were doing some backcountry stuff. Yeah. And now it's pretty much we barely we do some of our favorite touristy stuff like the Old Faithful area pretty much every year. But other than that, we get out into the the backcountry and out on trails. And it's just, it's incredible. Right, right. And I have not experienced that. Uh, we did do some hiking up in Glacier National Park. And that's one thing I would tell any Americans listening to this uh, podcast. If you haven't spent time in Yellowstone, you know, they're in, in, in northwest Wyoming, up through Montana and Glacier National Park, uh, down through Idaho, uh, Utah, um, that is the most beautiful corner of America and you have to see it. You just have to experience it. 
it is something to behold uh, the the beauty of our country right there in that that little area just majestic uh, views everywhere you turn and the crazy thing about yellowstone is you have all that traffic and all those people but if you look a little bit and do a little bit of research there are places where you can park the car and just walk for 10 minutes and all of that disappears yeah and you may see a couple more people or you may see absolutely nobody if you head out of the park towards the bear tooth area more likely than not you'll see less than five people on a trail Incredible. yet all the waterfalls all the mountain vistas you know until until you almost get tired of seeing things they're just unbelievable <laughs> until you almost get tired. oh boy i miss montana i'll say that so you also do some biking right now let me ask you this do you do you stay in bike lanes do you block traffic dave tell me how are you as a bicyclist i am not a cyclist in the form that okay. i'm shaking my fist at every car that goes by <laughs> I, I tend to ride the way i drive very defensively mm. except when i'm on my bike uh, des moines isn't terribly bike friendly so you have to think about where you're at and not get run over mm -hmm. so i ride with that in mind okay okay but all right yeah i'm glad you're not I, clogging I intersections thank you oh oh no i'm not gonna clog oh and i hate that you get the three and four deep and, and, and nobody moves and everybody's going slow and they're all angry. No, my okay. idea is I want to get from point A to point B as fast as possible and with as little interaction with anyone else as possible. Good, good, good. And, and, and you do you do run, right, uh, as, a, as kind of a, a hobby or what now? Because I, I, I run less now than I bike because, see, for years, Faith worked down at Iowa Methodist, which became Unity Point, downtown Des Moines. And originally, when we lived on the south side, it was about five miles away. Mm -hmm. So we started, I would run down to the hospital and Faith would walk back home and it'd give her a chance to kind of decompress and we'd talk. And it kind of became our thing during the non-Yellowstone times where we could be together and the world wouldn't be in our way. But I started running more. You know, again, that's kind of Doc's fault because that was his thing. <laughs> and I had been doing more riding than that, but it hurt my knees. And so I thought, you know, running sounds like it's going to hurt my knees even worse. So my wife, until she hurt her back, she was doing half marathons and crazy stuff like that. And I thought, no, I hate running. I'm never yeah. going to be a runner. And go. then we moved out here <laughs> and things didn't go well with the house. We had we I, I was constantly fixing something that was going wrong and getting kind of angrier by the day. And I knew I'd need an outlet. So I started running on Fridays down to the hospital, that 11 miles and change. And it became God. not just a habit, but something I actually kind of enjoyed. It's a way to reset your head and your thinking. And that's, I used a lot of that time just to kind of come to grips with the way our world was here. And the fact that, Hey, you know, Sometimes things aren't perfect. They're not going to be perfect. No matter how much you try to make them perfect, you're going to struggle. Yeah. And you know, that lesson certainly was something to uh, to want to focus on last year and this year. Yeah, and, and let's talk about that, though, uh, clearing your head. You go for a run. A lot of people do that. They'll go for a walk to clear their head. Whenever I go on a walk, I'm just thinking of all of the things I need to be doing, but I'm not back at the house able to do them. And so I, I, I just find myself starting to make lists on my phone as I'm walking. And the next thing you know, I've just I, I've effectively wasted this walk with technology in my hands. But at the same time, it was a productive walk because I was taking notes along the way. 
I guess, you know, to some extent, however you make it work. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and you feel better after the fact. Mm-hmm. But we had kind of a different advantage that most of our walking was done out in the wilderness. Okay. Yeah. And, and it, it, it gelled. It really gelled for us completely gelled in 2017 i had this idea for about a decade that i wanted to walk down to see this waterfall on the edge of yellowstone Mm. and when i say the edge of yellowstone i mean it's in the southeast corner of the park and so part my my 40th birthday gift in part was for us to plan for this one week 70 mile hike down to see a waterfall that maybe three or four people see in any given year, because it's actually in addition to a 30 mile trail hike, you have about a half a mile of some of the most aggressive off trail Canyon rock mess. In fact, it got so bad that I had to leave faith behind for the last about 500 feet because she just couldn't make, the rest of the trip up it was just too aggressive Mm. and she was afraid of falling which at one point i had to actually jump from a rock over to a hillside to keep from falling into the water now that said waterfall was completely worth it Uh the whole trip it it was it was a triple level waterfall where the second tier you could actually walk behind it oh nice got some pictures so not Oh, I, I have a ton of I took tons of pictures from all different angles and video and all that stuff because I knew that the odds of us ever coming back mm-hmm. were slim to none. And and in fact, it was the trail itself is aggressive enough that we were the only people on the trail that didn't have either a guide or had shortcutted the nine miles by a boat ride. Oh. So we were out doing the doing the hard long haul all by ourselves. And it was our first time out there. And in fact, what's, what's even just as cool is several miles beyond that is Bridger Lake, which is known as the most remote area in the lower 48. It is 30 miles as the crow flies to the nearest road, as remote as it sounds, it feels that way. Mm. And it's nestled in this Valley, big mountains all over. And the, there were swans and geese on the lake And when we approached it and they were still, even though we're on a trail that people use somewhat regularly, they're so unaccustomed to people. They swam from one side of the lake all the way to the other as soon as they saw us. Wow. Wow. See, and I love that because I'm looking right now, Bridger Lake just outside of the park's boundaries, it looks like. So you. Yep. You have to cross a river and then cross. Yeah. So we entered the park at the most remote place you can enter the park. Wow. Wow. So. That's one of the things that I love about getting out there is that it's actually quite liberating to be disconnected. Like you couldn't connect your phone to a signal if you wanted to. And so if I'm walking around my neighborhood with my phone and I'm logging notes or or something along those lines uh, as they come to me, I mean, that's fine stuff. But there's also the temptation where it's like, oh, my goodness, it sure is looking cloudy. Let me check the radar. Oh, look, funny weather videos are popping up on this app, you know, and the next thing you know, you know, you're not really disconnected on that walk. You go to Yellowstone, you go to Glacier, you go off on these trails, you have no connection with the rest of the world. And it is such an awesome feeling, is it not? It's like nothing else because you have to plan (laughs) for horrible things to happen, even if they don't. You have to plan for weather from 80 to 30. And this is where I have to give Faith the most credit for that trip because 
at the end of the first day, you know, we're carrying my pack was 50, 60 pounds. Hers was around 40. And we did 10 hilly miles the first day. And at the end of, of that run where you have this beautiful campsite right on, on Yellowstone Lake, it's absolutely gorgeous. I'm completely exhausted. And I'm thinking, what am I doing? We could have a vacation where we're doing little <laughs> casual day hikes yeah. and relaxing. And I look over at Faith and I say, you know what? You say the word and we'll just hike back out the next day and we'll find some place to chill out. <laughs> and she looks at me and she says, you know, as tempting as that sounds, would you regret it if we didn't go? And I looked at her and I had no answer other than, yeah, I would regret it. And she said, then we're going to stick it out. And so help me. She, uh, this is no lie. She complained zero times. Even though by the time we got back to the car, her feet were both completely, it was one big blister on each foot. I mean, mm. she actually had surgeries on both legs the years following because uh, they were already, her tendons were locking up so bad she couldn't flex her feet and her legs well enough to really walk that distance. Yeah. She put through all those miles without one complaint. And it was because she, we both knew it was an experience that it changes you and it bonds you too, because we knew for seven days, it was just us. And there were stretches where we saw no one the entire day. Now we did. Now that said, when we were, when we left Bridger Lake could it, to go back to our campsite, we had one campsite near the end of the park for two days. And that second night there, we had a squatter. We're eating our dinner and a man shows up off the trail. Whoa. And decides he's just going to camp there, which is, you know, against park regulations and kind of disturbing when you're 27 miles from the nearest road. Yeah, now all of a sudden there being is a, disconnected yeah. isn't so great. Uh, exactly. And my theory was there's a ranger station four miles away that wasn't manned earlier in the day, but I was going to run down there and leave a note. Hey, you know, we got a situation that we might need help. And Faith said, uh, you're not leaving me here with him. Mm -mm. So... We tried to get some information out of him and determined he was extremely hostile, but we determined that he had been really frightened by a bear the night before. And so he kind of decided he wanted to be around someone else, <laughs> which again is, is it's the type of thing where Not your why weren't you prepared for? Yeah. <laughs> and so thankfully he left us alone, but he never really, he wasn't far enough away for my liking. So I had a rather large hunting knife that was in my possession the entire night. And I didn't get much sleep. Um, we had a couple words on, on his way out. And I thought, well, you know, again, there's nothing I can do really at this point, but this is where, again, the, the story of how we were meant to be on this trip all kind of comes together because on our way back up the trail, because at this point now we're headed back to the car, we're following back up where we had been, we happen upon a park ranger, which in that territory isn't really a shock because there's really very few trails coming and going. There's there's one pretty much predominantly through the whole end from the lake all the way to the end of Yellowstone. Well, he was hitting a cross trail. He was actually a trail supervisor. We told him about what happened. And the, the funniest part of all of it, though, was at the very end, I asked him, say, you know, you were on part of this trail. Did you happen to see a rain fly for a, a big backpack? Because the only two weird things before the squatter that happened to us, we lost a sandwich somewhere, which maybe one of us ate it. We couldn't remember. That's that's beside the point. We lost our rain fly in a little willow bog on the second day, which would have been really bad had we gotten any rain because 
that rain cover for my backpack, I mean, all of our stuff was in there and I had no way to protect it from any rainstorm. And it had popped out of one of my pockets. Well, that guy had just happened to meet that section of the trail and picked it up and put it in one of their patrol cabins further up the trail. How and it's how ironic that we met the same guy that picked up what we left behind. And sure enough, about a month later, that same guy sent us our rain fly back in the mail with a little letter and a picture of the biggest grizzly paw print that I'd ever seen because we had actually that same grizzly had been walking along that trail the day before we were walking back heading in the opposite direction. And that trail, that marker, his print was, we saw it a couple different times, but he got the perfect impression right next to the trail cabin. So he took that picture (laughs) and sent us that plus the rain fly. Like you guys, you guys dodged a big one here. Wow. No kidding. My goodness. Wow. Tell us about seeing Kenny G on a golf cart at the Iowa State Fair. What was he doing you know, there? Was he going to be doing a show? That's the funny part about the Iowa State Fair <laughs> is that people don't really, they don't grasp the fact that even though Iowa is a lot of corn and hogs, people love their fair. And a state of 3 million has a million people walk through those gates. So a lot of first time fair goers, especially from the coasts, they get out there and all of a sudden they realize, wait, there's a hundred thousand people out here. (laughs) It's one of those where you're sitting on the grand concourse, the main stretch through the fair and you see a, a golf cart go by and I'm the only person that realizes, Hey, that's Kenny G and he's got his little horn and he's waving back and you know, all of his curls are flying around. And, but that's kind of just every day when you go to the Iowa state fair. And you saw Lindsey Graham there uh, when he was running for president. <laughs> now, you were the only person that recognized him. Oh no. Oh, it was even worse than that. I mean, he was there it was a meet and greet type situation where they they go out and glad hand out on the concourse for reference. When Obama came, I mean, he had security and there was this huge crowd. Bernie showed up during the last cycle. And I mean, you could barely walk through the street because of all the people following and chanting. Lindsey Graham's headed down there trying to reach out to people's hands as they go by. And everyone just looks at him. Who's that guy? Uh, you know him? Oh, no. And like, no, I don't know him. Oh, no. And, and I'm over there. I'm pointing and laughing. So <laughs> I realized that. And, and Faith's got that look, the you know, the wife look like, you know, one more of those and I'm just going to leave. And so I had to stop laughing before it got out of hand. But it was rough. Oh, my goodness. That's got to be that's got to be embarrassing to be like, uh, hey, hey, everybody, give me five. And there's nobody <laughs> Yeah, and his that his run kind of tanked. Uh, Michael Avenatti was the same sort of guy. Uh-huh. He, he he shows up in a limo and thinks that people are gonna just rush toward him, and everyone just goes, "Huh, who's that? Huh? Okay, <sighs> never mind. I'm gonna go get a corn dog." <laughs> That's I gotta I've gotta get to the Iowa State Fair. I'm not a fair guy. I'm not a state fair guy. I'm just not. But the Iowa State Fair just sounds like an experience. It's an experience that just like Yellowstone in that area that every American needs to have one time. There's so that you pack a hundred thousand people into this basically a square mile of unbelievable food, weird contests, tons of mullets, uh, all sorts of animals. It, it's an intersection of 
all parts of Iowa and really all parts of America because you can you name a type of person, mm-hmm. a culture, and and it's there. So you're gonna have to enlighten me on Truman Everett. Tell us who that. That's a person that you would like to go back in history and meet. Who is that? Truman Everts is. I love his story because it's bizarre and unfortunate at the same time. He was a city dweller, East Coast political kind of guy. Basically, he was kind of like the 50th wheel on one of the great Yellowstone explorations, which was really, it was the first real official one in 1870 Mm. with uh, Washburn and Langford. Everybody at that point was both an explorer and a politician, it seemed. (laughs) So he got to go along primarily as an observer. He didn't have any scientific additions to account for. He he wasn't an expert in any field. Just, hey, I want to be along. I know the right people. I'm going to go. Well, a couple days actually several days because they entered through the northwest section and took it takes at that point you know there's no trails there's no roads you're you're advancing sometimes in hours per mile instead of miles per hour he got a little bit turned around along the yellowstone lake area and crested a hill and then turned around a little bit more and all the rest of the party was going the opposite direction and he kept going the way he thought he should go. And it was the wrong way. No. Which, if you get into Yellowstone, that's easy to do. This would happen to um, me. And again, 1870, there's no roads. There's no people. You can drop into a canyon. And in fact, even there's areas, even with GPS, you have to at least put tracks on it because you can drop into canyons where you lose satellites and you're not going to get them back. Mm-hmm. And you want to make sure you come out where you went in because you don't know the hazards on the other side. So this guy gets turned around, gets lost, and decides he's going to keep moving to try to find the others. And he has very poor vision, ends up breaking his glasses. Oh. Um, I think eventually he lost his horse. And, and you also have to remember that this happened in October. And... Yellowstone, once you get through mid-September, it starts getting really cold at night. I mean, it's always cool at night, but then you're, you're talking about snow risk and highs in the 40s and 50s. And so he's there with no food, no supplies, eventually no glasses, no horse. And at that point, he's just surviving and meandering around trying to find some other sign of life. Oh. And throughout all that, the actual exploring party made it all the way around Yellowstone Lake, made it through the Old Faithful area, back out the Madison River, and then back to the East Coast. And they were sending scouts and mountain men to try to find this guy, assuming that they probably wouldn't. I mean, there are people that that go missing out in that area now, and they're never found. Well, he did manage to survive. He was eating what's now known as Everett's thistle, these nasty, disgusting looking thistles. He was pulling them out of the ground and eating them raw, which created some pretty massive intestinal issues and was keeping warm by finding hot springs, which of course he rolled over into one and burned himself really badly. By the time he was found at 37 days out there, he weighed about 40 pounds. No, my gosh, what? Yeah. A grown uh, man weighed 40, 40 pounds. pounds. How yeah. long was he and out was there? 37 days. Oh, God. It, it, it's, it's an absolutely incredible survival story because it's 
you think about the Bear Grylls type of survival where mm-hmm. we've got all this gear and we're, 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 it's man versus elements. This is man fumbling through every step of the way. God. One of the early concessionaires and I concessionaires an unfair statement because basically this guy built a bridge over one of the streams and charged people to cross the bridge in the very early days of the park. That was his later career after being a mountain man and explorer. Jack Baronet found Truman Everts. And, and that's another thing that's really interesting is because you're going by secondhand information. Mm-hmm. Everts Mountain is probably miles away from where he was actually found. It's been a while since I've read the story. I think he was in his early 40s. He lived for another 30 some years. Yeah. Yeah. I, I looked him up. He, he lived into the 1900s. Yeah. And, and the sad postscript for that was that this guy found Everts, made sure he survived. And there was a reward. And when Baronet just went to check on Everts to see how he was doing, they slammed the door in his face because they were afraid he was going to try to collect the reward. So, yeah, there were definitely jerks out in the West. Yeah, 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 yeah. Guy was born in 1816 in Burlington, Vermont. And then he obviously survived the Yellowstone uh, ordeal there and made it back to Maryland where he died in 1901. Fascinating stuff. And, And just like you, I love that period. In American history, uh, that that's why Back to the Future. You know, when when he he goes back to 1885, I'm like, yes, that's where I'd want to oh, land. Exactly, I would love that. <laughs> I spent enough time reading, and there's so mm. much mm. history of the park that's related to the rest. I mean, it's but it, you can kind of take pick a place, mm-hmm. and you just keep digging yeah. deeper and deeper, and you're going to find some amazing ties into the rest of of our history. So tell us about uh, your most embarrassing moment. You came home from school, your zipper was down. You realized you hadn't gone to the bathroom since the beginning of the day. Oh my gosh. All day, all day long. Your fly was down. If I'm going to do something stupid, it's going to be something like that. (laughs) To be fair. I mean, I was a little kid before we wrap up. I'm fascinated that a kid from Iowa almost went to the university of Hawaii. And that's uh, I guess that's a regret of yours. How did you almost end up there? It's hard to call it a regret because it's like a lot of things in life. When you're in the moment, when the transmission went out on our excursion in the moment, you think this is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. And then, you know, for us, by the time a full year had gone by, we realized what a blessing that was because life changed for the better out of a really bad circumstance. And this, the Hawaii thing wasn't a bad circumstance, but it was, I was able to get a really cheap ticket because I had a friend whose dad worked for TWA. And so this, you know, this is back in the nineties when TWA was still around. Um, Never been on a plane before. Got this really cheap ticket. We, they had family friends that were, that were on the Island. So we were going to have a free place to stay nearly free ticket. This was going to cost me next to nothing to go spend a week in paradise. I spent a lot of my time on the ground just exploring Honolulu and the greater area. And these people, they rented out their basement and the renters were leaving. Mm. And they really liked me. I really got along with them. It was really good fit. Going to the University of Hawaii as a resident was cheaper than DMAC at the time. Oh, wow. So I spent a lot of time really considering the this offer that I could I live there and work for a year and then go to the university how cool i would get a college experience that almost no one in iowa would ever have right and something told me that it wasn't the right thing to do Mm -hmm. and 
I passed on it. And, you know, who knows how life would have been afterwards, but there's part of me that thinks, man, especially the part of me when it's 10 degrees or colder and there's 20 <laughs> inches of snow on yeah. the ground. I think, man, I wish I would have had those right, years out right. there. When did you meet Faith? That's something that's, it's kind of cool because it's really common now to meet someone on the internet, but in 1997, it wasn't so common. I was on So you this, guys probably wouldn't have met then if you'd gone to Hawaii, huh? That's, well, it was, that was one of the things. It was during that time um, that I would have probably been still in school and not had met her or would have met in different circumstances because you'd like to think that everyone is meant to be with the person. And I, I do believe that. And I think that, that if I were to pick out any one reason for me to have not gone, that was it right there. Because I, I was going through kind of a rough point in my life where I knew I needed to make different friends and different connections. And she was at the same. She messaged me on, on this you know message board type thing online, went back in the old days of the internet when nobody had pictures or anything like that. But <laughs> she knew some of the same people I do. And that's, that's one of the common themes of Iowans is we all act like this is the biggest town ever in Des Moines, but everybody knows somebody <laughs> through a connection. Yeah, yeah. So she's like, hey, I know know this girl from from church and she knew you when you were at Grandview and yeah so she ends up writing back at the end of the free trial for this thing and says hey you know um if we're going to meet up you should come to my church okay well hmm. it ended up snowing out in October oh gosh. so what is the deal yeah, man I mean a lot of your I, I memories are snows in May and October I, I know it's terrible but that's it's like the the weird things that happen they happen around wait, snowstorms. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You met her in 1997? Yes. October of 1997? Yes. There was a devastating snowstorm in Lincoln, Nebraska in October of 1997 where the leaves were still on the trees, trees were yep. falling, pulling down power lines. It was a war zone. We actually had for the only time in my four years there at the University of Nebraska, that was the only time that classes were canceled. The power was out. Uh, cable, wow. yeah, everything was, was bad just down. storm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yep. It wasn't so bad here, but whenever you get a freak snowstorm yeah. in October, things sure. kind of grind to a halt. Exactly. So, so we ended up, it was effectively a blind date because neither of us knew anything about really the other everything, person. Everything back there was a blind date, effectively. You know what I'm saying? Like there wasn't, like you said, there was no internet. There were no pictures. There's nothing like that. Well, I didn't know. I mean, you get that thought in the back of your head that is this going to be some like crazy serial killer <laughs> yeah. or a 40-year-old dude? So <laughs> so I happened to have, we both were thinking, this is what's funny, is both of us were thinking the same sort of thing. I had a 1984 still have 1984 Corvette that I had just purchased the year before doing those newspapers all those years working for my parents. It was a neighbors who sold it really cheap. So everybody, you know, oh, this is the most opulent. No, it was it was a cheap older car, but I always wanted one. I remember, you know, little six year old me seeing that first ad for those. Mm -hmm. And that was the car that I always wanted. So I have this little blue 84 Corvette and the, one of the things that she had in her profile is that she drove a sports car, which was a Dodge Spirit. And I will never let her live that down, that a Dodge Spirit <laughs> is the least sporting of a sport anything. There is no sport. Even if it was called a sport, there's no sport. Yeah, that's tough. Anyway, so neither of us had seen each other. I didn't know what he looked like. So I have this $5 
flea market machete under my seat. And when I pick Faith up, I don't know until later that she had a switchblade in her purse. That's awesome. Because she didn't know what she was getting into either. But yeah, we went to TGI Fridays and I know what you did last summer. And and that was it. I mm-hmm. mean, oh, we cool. and we truly worked together better than than I ever thought it'd be possible for another human to be able to put up with me the way that she does. That's awesome. Well said, man. Well, I, I want to make sure that, that people understand that the greatest coffee in the world is made by you there outside of Des Moines, Iowa, aprcoffee.com. Thank you again for being the inaugural sponsor of this very podcast. Uh, Dave Matthews, people can find uh, your presence is online, uh, obviously, aprcoffee.com or on Twitter at aprcoffee. And your personal account is uh, at kaboom, which is spelled K U H B 00 M. K-U-H-B-0-0-M. Dave Matthews, man, I appreciate you making time today and joining me here on At The Mic. Oh, I'm just thrilled. I do have something else I've got to ask you. I I hate to play stump the host, but I kind of have to. I like it. I'm not going to say that that I'm going to take credit for your idea, but I'm not not saying that. Because way back, almost a decade ago, I sent you an email doing basically the same thing for I was I was helping run this thing called the feeders feed which was a fan based yeah. feed like what Jeffy um, did yeah during uh, the fourth hour Pat and Stu right uh huh well no this is he ran it Jeffy ran it during Glenn's show too oh yeah that's right yeah okay it, yep, yep he yep. ran it the whole time so so I ran this it was kind of what we did was we did our feeders feed for the evening show because Jeffy wasn't doing one for the evening so we we basically it was just it was a fan based thing, but we had a lot of followers mm. and a lot of people that supported me. Those that was the same core group that helped me build APR from the start. That's cool. But one of the things that we did, we formed up a question and answer thing and tried to get people, Jeffy, Natasha, you. We tried to get people to answer these 10 questions, life based ones. And then I would post the interview, you know, oh. quote unquote, through email, the results of the answers. Oh, wow. I vaguely and, yeah, remember so, this. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I still have, now, unfortunately, I don't have access to my old email account. So I don't know the answers. I just have the questions. But yeah, I, I, I want to know if you remembered us, uh, our goofy guys at the feeders feed, spitting out that, hey, what do you, what about Gert? And, how did you end up in Nebraska? Yeah. Things like that. Uh-huh. No, I do vaguely remember that now that you bring it up. Um, and what year would this have been when you sent this? Early 2012. Yeah. Like we're talking probably February. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm having this vision of me sitting on the couch in the house that we rented in New Jersey, uh, actually answering this, if you can believe it. So, yeah, I, I, I vaguely <laughs> remember awesome. that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, you bring up Gert, man. Greatest cat to ever live. Uh, played fetch. Uh, was so smart. Aww. And, uh, yeah, 17 and a half years we had that cat. Um, lived in Nebraska with us. Then Atlanta. Then Houston. Then Omaha. Then Charleston, South Carolina. New Jersey and Texas. 17 and a half years from college until uh, 2000 and. 14 she passed away that's so awesome yeah uh, we had our pup oscar from a few weeks through 15 years wow. and it's he was nothing but i mean he was a little terrorist but yeah <laughs> went through a whole lot of life it's you start thinking back like wow and you, i was in my 20s when we first got right, him right and then you lose that connection like in other words 
that was my last connection to college or I guess I, or not. I don't want to say it like that. Let me, yep. let, let me, let me no, say this. Let no, me, I know exactly you know what, what I mean? you're saying. You're it's, like, it's a, to a part, an older part of your life. Oh, right, right. That That's a better way to say it. Or we had Gert before, you know, we had before, before we got married, you know, it, it's yep. just, it's just, yep. it's just uh, these pets that, that we have for the longest time uh, in our lives. I had a cat named Clarence at one time. You have a dog named Clarence, right? Tell us about, he is a former service dog, whereabouts? We had Oscar for 15 years and in one week, I lost my day job. We had all of our markets get canceled and then Oscar died suddenly. Mm. And it was, I mean, it really rocked us because I mean, our world just, it almost like everything flipped on its end with all the COVID stuff just starting. It was a mess. So we knew that going to a new pet may take some time. And one of the things that we decided on was this pet, just like Oscar, would kind of come to us. And a friend of mine in radio, Simon Conway, who's on WHO locally here, he works with the Puppy Jake Foundation. And they what they do is they supply service dogs to returning wounded vets. And it's such a wonderful thing that they do. I mean, these these dogs cost about $20,000 each to train. They tra- they're trained for two years, hmm. and they're specifically trained to whatever the veteran's going through in their life. Oh, wow. And you see lives change just by having these dogs. I bet. And so, so being a part of even that w- was cool. But what happened with Clarence, he made it through most of the training. He was one of the dogs who was kind of maybe may make it and may not. And he ended up not full. He was a service dog for a while, but it just was a bad fit. So he went back to the trainer and the trainers had a couple of issues in their lives that made it so that they weren't going to be able to, to care for him anymore after having him for several years. And so the Saturday after Thanksgiving, I get a call from Simon that I missed. And then he calls Faith and he got through the part of, so we have this retired service dog and Faith's answer was yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Before any other details, it was yes. And so that's how Clarence came to us. And he's oh, cool. he's just turned eight, golden retriever, beautiful, super smart. Um, he's still in fact, he's he's right next to my side right now. He wants to be with you at all times. Uh-huh. Um, but he's just absolutely the most wonderful dog. He couldn't, if we would have asked for any other follow-up to Oscar, he checks off every single box. Wow, that's really cool, man. How great. Pets are awesome. And all those pictures of him on Twitter, putting on a birthday <laughs> hat and a shirt. He loves having a, you put a shirt on him and he walks around strutting. And, oh yeah, he's, <laughs> he, he is a complete character. I love it. I love animals and uh, don't ever apologize for putting pictures of your pets on Twitter. I'm very, very guilty of that. Oh, Dave Matthews, APRCoffee.com. Thank you so much for making time today. I really appreciate it, buddy. Thank you. This was wonderful. Got to get to Dallas still. I don't care. It's going to happen. <laughs> okay, I promise cool. it is going to happen. Awesome, man. I'll talk to you later. Thanks for making time, man. Dave Matthews is such a great guy. I hope you'll try his amazing coffee over at aprcoffee.com. And please note, we were buying coffee from APR long before they were a sponsor of this program. We're so grateful for the support from a truly great American company. If you get a chance, I hope you'll rate and review this podcast where possible. It helps others locate it when they're looking for good conversations. And as always, don't forget at the mic shop, as well. Some good stuff to choose from as we head into the spring and summer months at the Mike Show t-shirts 
are available. They're extremely comfortable, by the way. That's at themikeshop.com. Next week, we're going to sit down with a musically gifted friend of mine, Dalal Bruckman. She'll join us to talk about her life that's had her living on four continents. Wow. That's an amazing fact right there. But until we do meet here again next week, I hope you'll go be free. And thank you for listening. This has been At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Head to atthemikeshow.com for archived episodes, sponsor information, and ways to connect.